This episode of The Savage Land is brought to you by Comic Bento. You can visit comicbento.com and use the promo code SAVAGE for $5 off your first box. That's comicbento.com. Use the promo code SAVAGE. Welcome back to The Savage Land. I'm Jason Hammonds, and today I'm talking to Sam Humphreys. You know Sam from his current run on Nightwing, as well as books like Green Lanterns, Citizen Jack, Our Love is Real, and many more. Sam, to start off, I've heard MySpace had something to do with your early comics career. How did something like that tie in with comics? (laughs) So I actually have a a whole other career background in new media and online stuff. I've been producing websites like back in... 1998 oh, like wow. if you if you went to the website for the south park movie i produced that website yeah there you go uh, nice that's right yeah uh so a friend of mine who i knew through that world got hired at myspace and uh ended up hiring me mm-hmm. um and i was there for the the whole the whole ride from <clears throat> myspace is like a a, a small up and comer to the uh, the the largest website in the world, and uh, ended my time at MySpace with the very first round of layoffs, of which there there were many. So I oh, saw wow. the uh, the entire experience. Um, <clears throat> one of the great things about MySpace is they they just be uh, uh, there was there was so much I don't know how to say it, like there was just so much traffic uh-huh. and we could turn that traffic into like money and prestige and, and kind of like the freedom to do whatever we want. So people had heard that I had an experience in comics and they're like, we should do a comics portal that meanwhile I was, I was working on stuff for like movie studios and I was working on um, some in, in industries with a lot more pull and money. Yeah. Um, so my my immediate response when people would say that would be like, no, we we should we should not do anything with comics. We should do nothing with <laughs> comics because my my fear was that uh, you know you know MySpace would would enter comics and kind of be like a, a bull in a china shop and just just kind of be this this uncontrollable force. And then uh, you know my my boss or whoever would get bored of it and say like pull the plug and then that would be that. Um, but uh, you know just people kept bringing it up over and over again. And this was uh, like 2006-ish. So we had a lot of great comic book movies and comic books were hip and all this stuff. Um, and I kind of figured out a way to do some things on MySpace that I thought would be beneficial long-term to comics, even if for whatever reason, MySpace turned fickle and decided they didn't want to be in the associated comics anymore. So we did uh, a lot of great stuff, a lot of cool stuff, just, uh, the other day was the the ten year anniversary of the very first comic book to be published online on the same day and date it was published in print. Wow! And I'll say that again because it sounds kind of dumb uh-huh. now, but it is it was the very first comic to be available online at the same time it was available in stores. It, it's weird to say it now because virtually every comic that you can think of. The day it is in stores is the day it is online, whether it's comicsology yeah. or whatever. But that was such um, a huge thing. It's at the a time. very common thing. Back then, it was heretical. Back then, it was a wild idea, and 
people were not sure that it was possible or feasible to even read it that way. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people thought it would be the end of the direct market. Um, it, so it was interesting when that anniversary came up that this to be like, wow, I mean, like things have, things have changed quite a bit. Things have changed a lot. Um, but yeah, man, we had, yeah. we had a lot of fun in MySpace and, uh, it was an incredible, amazing experience. And I met a lot of, um, very sharp, smart, hardworking people from mm. all different walks of life. Um, and, uh, a lot of them, we all, we all keep in touch and we've all gone on to do uh, a lot of, a lot of amazing things. And I mean, speaking of a, a group of people that have gone on to do a lot of amazing things, I know that, uh, another sort of part of your, your kind of comic book history or origin was that you were, you were kind of, a into the, the Warren, Warren Ellis forums back in the day that has produced so much of today's I was. Kind of talent. I was. We're, we're going way back in time now, aren't we? Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm always so curious because it's like, you know, you've got guys like you and Fraction and, and Zadarsky and, I mean, a giant list of, of <laughs> creators today that started in that sure. forum. Kelly Sue, yeah. Kieran, and Jamie, and um, uh, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley, and... Uh, a lot of the Oni guys. Um, so yeah, huge. It was, uh, Andy Corey, who, who's an editor at DC now. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people who are, who are, you know, creators of comics and a lot of people who are behind the scenes of the comics, too. What What do you think it was about those forums that, that not only, you know, obviously, like, brought you guys sort of together over this thing, but... but helped you you know all of these different people develop and and sort of go on this trajectory that would that would you know culminate in a, a career in comics man that's a great question and a lot of people um <clears throat> a lot of people will probably have answers that are, are a little more insightful than mine uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh i i always think about it in the context of where the comic book industry was at the time mm-hmm. um and that was a really really exciting and I think transformational time for the industry because <clears throat> right around that era you had um, image was beginning to be seen uh, more as like indie comics rather than like uh, uh, Wildcats and Spawn, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and CrossGen was just starting up and Marvel was just coming out of bankruptcy and Joe Casada had just taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really exciting. And the Spider-Man movie had come out and that was a movie that kind of cemented for everyone that like superheroes, at least in, in the movies were here to stay. Yeah. Um, and, and also the same time was the, the, the sort of manga summer of love where the manga explosion in America really came out and took hold. And you had Tokyo pop. There's one summer where Tokyo pop, uh, really settled on that that uh, 100% authentic manga format that they came up with that really exploded. Mm. Uh, and Viz came out with uh, Shonen Jump, which uh, was on newsstands and had Yu-Gi-Oh! And it really uh, ignited the growth that transformed uh, Viz today. And not, not just on the stands, but what happened with Viz at the time is, and I'm going really deep in the weeds here, but <laughs> Viz <laughs> had uh, Viz had an injection of uh, of investment from two Japanese manga giants uh, that that previous to this, from my understanding, and I'll probably butcher this recount, <laughs> but these are publishing houses that that go back over a century. Uh-huh. 
that uh, have kind of been in, in family control, and there was basically like a blood feud between these two families. Okay. And they came together to invest in Viz, to invest in the American market because things were blowing up. And conventions were really starting to blow up at that time, too. Mm-hmm. Like that's when Comic-Con, like people really started identify, identifying Comic-Con. Um, anyway, I've, I've gone way off track. It's okay. That I like was it. The same, <laughs> <laughs> that was the same moment in time where uh, uh, the Warren Ellis Forum, or at least where I joined the Warren Ellis Forum, um, mm. And one of the things that's great about or was great about the Warren Ellis Forum is that uh, Warren really uh, enforced a use your real name. So mm. you can you can just show up and talk shit. Uh, and I think it really fostered not just a different atmosphere that wasn't like bogged down by trolls, but it fostered like a high minded atmosphere where, yeah, yeah, there were a lot of jokes and we had fun, but there was also a lot of like very... Um, uh, the, the conversations about comics that I, I guess you would say were, were very progressive or were very outside sort of um, what how, how Wizard was talking about comics. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of indie publishers on there, like Oni, um, and there are, were a lot of creators, like everyone you just mentioned, who uh, had, had never um, made a comic before. And you could see or at least I can with the benefit of hindsight, the <laughs> conversations we were all having at that time spawned all the comics that we all ended up making. Mm. Uh, it was sort of a, a, a frame of reference or, you know, we, we talk about like what was wrong with distribution and how as creators we could short circuit that. Um, or what kind of stories we would like to see, but we weren't seeing not just stories that we wanted to see, but stories that we felt that could be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, we would talk about what was happening with manga's explosion in America and see, and we were trying to figure out, you know, how, how we could uh, be a part of that success as Western creators, um, <clears throat> if at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and talk about how uh, online and the rise of internet was impacting everything, uh, obviously, because we had a message board. Yeah. But also, you know, web comics and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean you can you can see the seeds of all those careers, particularly the early stages of those careers, uh, like something like phonogram. In, in hindsight, oh, you can yeah. really see b- beginning like the ideas coming together, if not already coming together, but sort of um, just just the way they looked at as creators and looked at the market as a business um, came from a lot of that sort of group conversation, that extended group conversation that we were always having about comics and the future of comics. Hmm. That's interesting. It's always like, uh, you know, especially for, for me, like kind of like coming up in, in, in comic stuff post the war in Ellis form. It's always interesting to imagine, uh, what was going on there that brewed such a, such a prolific group of creators. Um, but it was, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, like I said, the moment in time, like shit was going down and, you know, <laughs> things at Marvel were exciting, but you didn't know if Marvel was going to, be around a year from now and yeah uh it it, it really did seem like a, a world of possibility had opened up and kind of walking into that was a bunch of like um you know sarcastic overthinkers who were really creative and were, were raring to get out there and do our thing um Makes I, sense. I, I think that'd be a great way to kind of sum it up yeah yeah do, do you remember the first comic script you ever wrote yeah absolutely it was our love is real 
Really? That was the first first thing you ever wrote in a, in a script format. That's crazy. It was, yeah. Uh, and I wrote it during the Warren Ellis Forum era. Interesting. Uh, because, yeah, we wanted to do... God, this is getting real deep. I but uh, we had pitched... Uh, There's a group of us who came together who had pitched uh, an anthology called Revolver where we all did short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it, I was in it, uh, Charlie Chu, who is now, uh, director of development at LA press was in it. Cool. Kieran Gillen was in it. Chris Sabella was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy Love was in it. Uh, I know I'm leaving people out. I'm going to feel <laughs> terrible, uh, if they listen to it, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who are now, you know, now have their careers in comics. Uh, and that short story this, this it's hilarious because this is so misguided. It was such a misguided way of trying to uh, pitch an anthology. First of all, trying to just pitching anthology at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, anthologies then and now don't really sell. Yeah. Uh, and then it was an anthology held down almost entirely by unpublished creators. <laughs> uh, great, great selling point for any publisher. Uh-huh, of course. Uh, and then we came to them. <laughs> We, we came to them with, I still have one around here somewhere, but our, our pitch, it wasn't a, like a pitch. It wasn't a, a paragraph or a page or something easily digestible. We all wrote out our scripts and printed them out at Kinko's and bound it together <laughs> and expected some poor publisher to, to take them off our hands and actually read them and then decide <laughs> to publish these comics. So you guys made um, millions of dollars off this thing is what you're telling me. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so a version of Our Love is Real, I mean, this would have been like 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. version of Our Love is Real was in Revolver. Interesting. Did you yeah. Did you feel like you had already, like when you, when you wrote Our Love is Real, did you feel like you had already found your voice as a writer, or when do you think that came, if, if uh, it wasn't then? How long do you think it took you? I mean, I don't really think that I've found my voice yet, to be honest. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, not really. I don't know. I, uh, others may disagree with me, but, uh, uh, with our love is real. I felt pretty certain that I had landed on something that people would not be able to forget. Mm -hmm. I'll put it that way, I guess. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I thought there were some definite advantages to that. You know, there's there's one thing about Our Love is Real, and this came into play years later when I self-published it, but Our Love is Real, there was this period of time where I was preparing to self-publish Our Love is Real and Sacrifice, Mm -hmm. and I was looking at sort of all these pitches that I put together for publishers that had gone nowhere, and I had like maybe 10 or 12 all all told, and I was like, if I'm going to self-publish something, if I'm going to put all this effort into it, I'm going to make sure that these are comics that would, wouldn't exist if I, if I don't do them, mm-hmm. which I guess in a sense is like a, a kind of like identifying your voice in a way. But some of these pitches I had were like, it was just like spinning the wheel of concepts. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you spin one wheel on the left side and it comes up with Die Hard and you spin the other wheel on the right side, it comes up with SeaWorld. And you're like, uh, <laughs> Die Hard at SeaWorld, you sure. know, but like, if I don't make that book, someone eventually is going to make it. Yeah. Like there's nothing that specific or unique to it. So I think, I mean, at the beginning I did kind of identify, I was like, I mean, 
if I don't make this dog sex book, nobody will kind of thing. <laughs> you know, that honestly, I think that is a sentence that uh, no other human being has ever really said. So, <laughs> <laughs> See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's, that's exactly it. That's funny. So, so with our love is real. Was that your first experience pitching something, or or had or did you have like a different pitch that was more? Um... No. Uh, oh, with, with revolver. Yeah. Sorry. With with revolver. Uh, I'm assuming that was your first experience yeah. pitching something. It was my first experience pitching something uh, in the comic book world. Mm. Um, but we just gone about it in such a way that I don't I don't know that we ever really like did like what you would think of like as a traditional pitch okay i mean like i said we handed them like uh how many pages yeah just script too much uh and and there wasn't ever a moment where i was like imagine a world or blah 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 you know what i mean like (laughs) there, there, there there wasn't anything along those lines so it was my first experience pitching and getting turned down in comics what was your first accepted pitch uh, I guess my first accepted pitch would have would have been the first comic I ever had published, which mm-hmm. was a six page Fraggle Rock short story I did for Archaea. Oh yeah, that's right. I, what was uh, what was your Fraggle? I never I never read that. After well, this interview is over, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I never read the 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 Fraggle Rock thing. I've I've heard about it and obviously you know kind of seen it in your history of work. But what was the what was the story there? Uh, the story was that um, <clears throat> I had I gotten laid off from MySpace, and I really had this moment where I was like, if I don't if I don't try to make it as a comic book writer now, mm-hmm. like I will, this is a moment that I will flash back to on my deathbed and regret. Like this is a moment I wish that I had seized because I wasn't married, I didn't have any kids, I didn't have a mortgage, like nothing like that, yeah. and it wasn't. It wasn't without any risk, but it was kind of like the least amount of risk I would ever get. Like the like the, the Venn diagrams were converging, and it was like, this is the best opportunity I'll have to make it happen. So <clears throat> I was coming up with pitches, and I was pitching them around, and a lot of them was to the, the, the Los Angeles or, or nearby publishers who I had known personally um, just from being around town and through some MySpace stuff. So... I was pitching a lot to Boom and Archaea and uh, Wildstorm, actually. Um, and n- nothing was really landing, but mm-hmm. I had sort of gotten in front of Archaea enough that they were like, they, they were doing an, an anthology for Fraggle Rock and they had a lot of spots to, th- to fill. And they thought that uh, maybe I could uh, step up and uh, prove myself in a fairly low risk environment. There you go. Yeah. And uh, do you think that that helped you with your, like, you know, sort of getting started in, in kind of, you know, commercial comics? Uh, do you think it helped you to start on something that was such a sort of, you know, like six pages, such a short story? Yeah, it was six pages and it was a square format, too. Mm. So every page was like kind of like two thirds of a page compared to like a Marvel or DC comic. Um <clears throat> So yeah, I learned I learned a lot working on that. <laughs> I screwed up a lot on that one, uh, but it's it, it's also very forgiving because people just love Fraggle Rock. Like if you're reading it, you probably love Fraggle Rock. You're mm-hmm. probably just charmed to seeing these characters again. So uh, as a reading experience, most, most people are very, very forgiving about it. But yeah, I do think that it was um, 
very impactful mm-hmm. on my my development as a as a writer, uh, and I'm I'm very grateful for it because I I don't I don't know we the thing to not do if you're breaking in as a writer is to pitch here's my 60 issue Sandman story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because a no one's gonna no one's gonna buy that from you, and b you're not ready for it. You like you think you're ready for it, but you're you, you're just not. Yeah. <clears throat> So for me, being able to go from a, a six-page Fraggle Rock story, uh, I, from there I went to an eight-page CBGB story, mm-hmm. short story, in the anthology that Boom Studios did. From there I went to the Our Love is Real one-shot, uh, which was, I think, 24 pages. Mm-hmm. And only from there did I go to a multi-issue story, which was Sacrifice, which was a six-issue limited series. So I, I kind of climbed the ladder in a sense in terms of um, what I was biting off each time. Yeah. Uh, and I, it, it wasn't calculated. Like I, I, I wasn't like being like super smart about it. This is just how <laughs> the opportunities fell in my lap. Yeah. But again, with the benefit of hindsight, I am really grateful feel like that it was good for circumstances you. did prevent me from biting off more than I could chew. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Um do you feel like now, you know, years later, you've, you've kind of, you've had a lot of obviously different experiences in comics. You've, you've produced stuff, both, you know, creator owned, self-published, you know, for Marvel and for DC. Do you feel like you're at the point now where you kind of have a, you know, your, your Sandman sort of brewing, you know, your 60 issue, uh, epic? Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, it's, it's weird now the way the marketplace works, Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms specifically in terms of creator own, because every, everything is an ongoing until it isn't right. Yeah, that's fair. Like every, every, every book could go 60 issues. (laughs) Like the defining factor isn't whether or not you feel you're ready or whether or not you feel you have the story or whether or not you even want it to go 60 issues. Of course. The, The defining factor really just comes down to like, how well does it sell? Yeah. And 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 to get more specific about it, it comes down to how much sales does your first issue have at FOC. Mm. And there's a slim chance that you can recover when the book comes out if you come in low on FOC. But you know, probably about ninety percent of the time these days, uh, you can tell how far a book is going to go um, with uh, right 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 away, right 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 on that FOC deadline before anyone really reads a page of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, there there are some books that I, I wish had gone longer. Jonesy, uh, Caitlin Rose Boyle is my co-creator on that one. Yeah. We thought that we could have we done Jonesy for 100 issues. Mm. No problem. No problem. I, that that would have been amazing. I, I would have loved every issue. No, no question. Uh, that's a little different from like a Sandman because it's not quite an epic in the same way. Yeah, because that, that was like a, an all ages book at uh, Boombox, right? Yes, exactly. Yep, and, and it was kind of episodic. And, and the further we went, the more the stories uh, were kind of drawn out, or we, we would follow plot lines from one issue to the other. So <clears throat> I feel like eventually we would have had like a a six issue arc, but it's still not quite. Uh, a why the last man in terms of planning out, uh, an, an intricate story, mm. um, with, with, with higher earth at boom, that was a book that I did 
earlier in my career that was it was creator owned uh and i re- that that one i felt i really could have gone the distance creatively mm. uh i i, I could have gone 60 issues on that one i had i had a lot of um just like background and world building and things I want to do with the characters. Yeah. Uh, that said, I, I didn't really have like a solid 60 issue outline. So uh, if it had taken off, I, I would have had to, to scramble to figure that out. <laughs> that makes sense. I, I feel like that's... But, uh, it, but it is a weird like... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that I feel like that's kind of how a lot of people are with, with series that end up going pretty long. You know, they'll, they'll kind of map out their first, you know, five issues or whatever. And then if it starts going beyond that, they're like, oh, crap, I got to figure out what's actually happening here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what I was going to get into. Is that there, it's this weird, like, limbo place when you're launching a career-owned book because you don't... Um, <clears throat> You don't know how far it's going to go. Mm-hmm. You, you, you got five issues, maybe six, guaranteed. Um, and then if it's if it's good, you you want to have a story that can continue. I mean, and by good, I mean sales are good. Not yeah. quality is good. If sales are good, you're going to want it to continue. And if sales are really good, you're going to want it to have a, at least three trades, maybe six trades, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but on the other hand, you don't it. It, it's tough to really feel motivated to <laughs> plot out an, an intricate 60 issue story when you don't even know if you're going to get past six. Yeah, of course. And with the market the way it is right now, not yeah. not not a lot of books are. Well, there's no uh, reason to waste so that kind of brain power when there's there's other work to be done, you know. Exactly. Like we've all got other shit to do. Not even <laughs> just like work, but we've all got yeah. we all got shit we got to do in our lives, you know. <laughs> So, and, and you do on the books that like you fall in love with, like sometimes mm-hmm. this stuff just comes out and like, you can't help it. And it's great. You write it all down and save it for later. But generally, I don't, I don't know if it's even, advi- I, I, I don't know if it's advisable to plan out 60 issues. I, no. I think you're just in, inviting heartbreak at that point. Um, uh, the, the best thing to do is to come up with a story that you love so much that you, like the, the ideas just keep coming and you feel like, you have a lot to say mm-hmm. the characters and the emotions and the theme. And then, then I think the, the plot will follow, you know, what, what happens? I, I, I think that will follow. Now do you, so, so that's actually, that kind of ties into a question that I had when you, when you're writing, do you tend to start like character first theme or plot or what, what's like the first thing in your head when you're planning a new story? Man, do do other writers have an answer for this? I don't know. I, that that's it's definitely a thing. I this this is a question that I'm asking you I, before I, I've asked I feel like else. I should I should have an answer for this, but I I don't. <laughs> uh, I I feel like maybe like I don't know. Jeff Lemire is like like really on point with this kind of thing. But he's got a mathematical I equation for like, how he does it. I no, I just feel like he's he's probably like good enough where like he knows like how to how like really get it done. Uh, me, I just kind of like, like if I, if I have an idea for a book, like I, I, I'm just happy. I'm just, yeah. just feel lucky that I have something that I want to pursue. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I don't know that I really have anything that I start with. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have a creator own book that's not announced yet, but, oh. uh, it'll, it'll be announced later this year that, um, the way it came about literally is that I was stuck writing something uh, I want to say it was for Marvel because I've been developing this for a while, but I was stuck and <clears throat> I, I was like, well, 
like I, I couldn't write the pages I was supposed to write. And I was like, fuck this. Like, I need to be writing. Like, I need to write five pages a day. You know, like yeah. that old writer thing. Like, write five pages a day no matter what. Yep. So I just opened a new document and started a script out of nowhere. Um, hmm. I didn't have any plan. I didn't have any character sketches. Wow. I didn't have any background. I didn't have any outline. And I just wrote five pages of it. And then, uh, and I was like just excited by it. And the next day I came back to it and I did the, you know how um, Moebius, when he did the airtight garage, every five pages, maybe six pages, I forget, but every chunk of pages, he would purposely cut to a new location, Mm. a new character. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I just, that's what I did in this book. And I ended up with a script that I just I just loved and I fell in love with and I've never come up with anything like that in that way before. Um and it was long. It definitely needed some editing. It didn't like come up perfect by any means, but mm. I just loved the characters and all of a sudden I had a setup. <clears throat> I could see the story going all these places, but I just like really wasn't quite sure. So I, I sent it to my my friend and uh, my sometimes editor Janine Schaefer who oh, yeah. Has worked at both Marvel and DC, mm-hmm. and she edited uh, Citizen Jack and Jonesy. And I just kind of like basically sent her an email of like some question marks, and I was like, "Is this good?" <laughs> and she was like, "This is amazing." And so, <laughs> she was like, "Sweet, I'm uh, I'm gonna do something with I this." Up, like, yeah, exactly. That's how I was like, "All right, I'm in." It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna see where this takes me. I'm gonna pursue it. So that's awesome. It's been in development for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, it will be announced at some point later this year that's awesome do you, do you find that you're someone uh because i feel like everyone has a different approach to this some people you know they they it's almost like you're you're so in the weeds that you have to have like friends and people like that read it to know if it's any good at all or and other people it's like <laughs> you have to be totally isolated to to sort of experience that do you find that you're you're typically a person that's that's trying to get notes and and just general feedback from friends yeah, I like getting the the notes and the feedback. And on my creator own books, it's uh, <clears throat> extremely important to me to have an editor. Uh-huh. Uh, some people just go it on their own, and that's great. But uh, I really feel the need to have an editor and to have that kind of that kind of feedback. Um, nice. It's tough, though. You know, I I wish I could just send my scripts to my friends who are excellent writers and and get their feedback all the time, but we're all busy like trying to make sense <laughs> of our own scripts and <laughs> that's fair it's tough you know i mean we we all really try to make like time for each other but you gotta you gotta pick and choose your battles on that one yeah, but i, w- I would love it if lines. i could send send it yeah and, and that's the other thing like sometimes you're writing it and you like you just gotta hand it in like get a hand in tomorrow and that's that's that yeah but uh like nightwing a lot of like my early work on nightwing i, I pass around to um <clears throat> some of my writer friends and got some great feedback on, which was, which was mm-hmm. very nice and helpful. Um, so yeah, wherever I can get it, I, I, I like to have it. And that's actually, that's, that's a, a good sort of point to start talking about Nightwing because you and you and Tim Seeley kind of did this fun thing where you just sort of traded books. Uh, did you guys compare notes or anything like that? Like when, when you took over Nightwing from him and he took over Green Lanterns from you, was there a lot of conversation on sort of what had been going on or anything, or did you both just kind of start cold? Um, you know, creatively, we were both drawing our, our, our runs to a natural close. Mm. I had been on Green Lanterns for, I want to say, like 33 issues or something like that. Yes. Tim had been writing Nightwing for 
much longer. He'd be been writing Dick Grayson for much longer. He, you know, he oh, had like a, a real like. <clears throat> I kept I keep calling it a, a real hang it in the rafters run on the character. Mm. Um, so he he really was able to like, kind of bring it to a close and. It was nice that we were both able to be like, hey, this is like clear for you to do do what you want to do. Like, <laughs> go for it. Um, we, d- we did talk and we talked a lot. Uh, you know, we, we were pals before this, so it was easy to like chat and text about things. And we, we compared notes about about fandoms too and kind of kind of prepared each other for what kind of fandom we we're about to enter and all that kind <laughs> of stuff. Has have you found a, a significant difference between like fandom for Green Lanterns versus fandom for Nightwing? Uh, Nightwing fandom is extremely invested in who his butt he is. should be with and who he is who he should date. Okay. Um, they and and specifically like they really really want to have an answer as to whether or not he should be with uh, Babs or Corey, <laughs> and and they don't want to have an answer. They just want you. To answer on their side that's funny uh and I, they will try and they'll, they'll they'll try and trick you into it too it's yeah. amazing like they, they, they're they're really like weaponized on this uh <laughs> and it's awesome and i love it but uh it's it's <laughs> i know it's a trap <laughs> i know I, it's a trap uh and in green lanterns um, this really nice thing happened where, you know, DC was like Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz. And I was like, great. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really, I just have this gut feeling that they should not be a will they or won't they. Okay. They, they, they should, there shouldn't be no romantic tension between them. Like that's not what this book should be about. Mm-hmm. And DC was, DC was like, sounds great. And, uh, but it's, it's a risk, you know, and the, the, the fandom, really embraced that right away and got very um protect protective of it i guess in in a way that you know even to me they'd be like you, you better not have them get get together and i was like don't worry like i got this i got this <laughs> i know what i'm doing i swear that's uh yeah, I was like this is my idea so i'm, I'm with you <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned the relationship thing because I I did actually have the question written down of uh, which relationship do you favor for for Dick Grayson? I didn't even realize that there was such a a, a polarizing contention. You mean between that. Babs and Corey? Were you trying to get me to give you an answer between Babs and Corey, dude? Maybe. I, I can't. Yeah, this is You're trying to get me killed online. That's what's happening. Here. I tried. I tried to get the same thing out of Tim Seeley a few months ago, and he wouldn't give me anything, but. It's uh, just the worst. I guess I got to cross that question. That, yeah, I got to cross uh, out that entire I, I paragraph. Able, <laughs> I, I I don't have to go into witness protection. Okay. So. <laughs> is it a is it a goal at this point to in some way objectify Dick Grayson in every arc of a of a Nightwing story? Is that kind of like a thing that's just going to happen now? <laughs> I just I mean he's 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 hot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he's 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 hot and and. People uh, like looking at his butt and his muscles, and you know, seeing his like rippling abs, and seeing him take off his shirt and stuff, and like, man, who can blame him? Like, he's fucking hot. I mean, I, I, you've been leaning into it's, it pretty it's, hard. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's not, there's not a whole lot more to it except that that's who the the character is, absolutely, and. Uh, 
it, it, it'd be like, you know, people want to see Superman fly. They, they, they want to see Spider-Man swing on a web. Like, that's just, it's just part of who Dick Grayson is. So if you're reading between the lines, listeners, you can infer that Sam Humphreys just said that Dick Grayson's superpower is his butt. Just... <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of them, that's for sure. <laughs> that's, uh, it's funny. I, like, when, when I turned the page for that reveal of, of uh, Dick Grayson stripping uh, with dollar bills uh, falling out of his, his underwear there, that was, uh, that was pretty funny and surprising. Yeah. Were, yeah. You, were you laughing to yourself uh, when you were writing was... that, or was it a thing that you just like, cruised on by and, and kept going? No, I mean, it was, it was an idea I had early on that uh, I wanted to make sure... Uh, I, I worked in, uh, or you know, that I was very excited to um, see see if we could we could get it in there uh, in, in a way that made sense for the story, and so I was, I, was, I was glad to find a place for it. So you crafted this entire arc around that moment, is what you're saying? Exactly. That's all this arc is. It's all downhill from here. Um. <laughs> What I've found uh, kind of fun about this this arc is that you've you've found a really interesting way to incorporate you know artists like um phil jimenez and klaus jansen in kind of very fitting ways in this story you know like with with klaus you have this story going back to when he's robin and and you know like this sort of era that that you know klaus jansen i think kind of first rose to prominence in um but i'm curious and just to sort of you know have you talk about a little bit i guess how uh why why you felt that that klaus and and phil were both right for the the specific stories um or the specific issues, rather, that uh, that you brought them in for? Um, <clears throat> this goes to some, like, real, like, behind-the-scenes, like, nuts-and-bolts stuff Love where it. Nightwing is, is shipping twice a monthly, mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's no artist alive who can keep up <laughs> with that, so it's no... Uh, <clears throat> it's no surprise, but it's also no, no diss on, on any artist who, on a twice-monthly book, needs other artists to come in, and Bernard is fast. He's fast artist and he's good he's really really good but mm. um we knew that he would need some breaks of course um and this and, and when we're talking about it it had when we're talking about it, i had already sort of had this vague intention to really honor what i thought were like three great eras of his character. Mm-hmm. One, one of course being, being Robin. And I ended up kind of pegging that onto the, the early golden age Robin stories, like the Dick sprang and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the era of new teen Titans by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, uh, which is near and dear to my heart. And then um, this, the sort of current, current Nightwing, which I'd be, I'd be writing already. Um, and I, I wanted to find some way to, I, I, I just, I just had in my mind that I wanted to, to honor that or, um, uh, incorporate it in some way and, and yeah. touch on it as if this was like my only, my only chance to, if, if, if this is my only chance to write Nightwing, that, that it was something I didn't want to leave on the table in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also dovetailed with my plans for the judge which was that this was a character with a long history, uh, not just a long history with Bloodhaven, but a long history with uh, Dick himself, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a character that would um, <clears throat> not just impact Dick 
be, be, be because this is a guy's gonna blow up the reservoir, you know, not just the sort of like typical superhero stakes, but just the fact that he was back, the fact that he was out there was something that would really impact Dick emotionally, deep down in a foundational way. Yeah. You know, the the judge represents the failure, two failures of Dick to kind of be, you know, quote unquote a good superhero, to be good at his job. And this is a guy who is a lifer. Mm-hmm. He has he has no identity beyond this. So the judge is wrapped up. You know he's he's a bad guy and he's he's doing his thing, but he he represents so so much conflict within Dick and how he feels about his life and who he is and being a crime fighter, his relationship with Batman, all this kind of stuff. So so mm-hmm. when we came to the nuts and bolts stuff, uh, I was like, well, there there could be like really great opportunities in this arc to have flashback issues, so to speak. Mm-hmm. People like call them flashback issues because they think it, it's, uh, they're irrelevant or they're there. They don't matter, you know, but we, we found ways to really incorporate big reveals, not just about Dick, but about the judge, uh, yeah. and a lot of other, uh, aspects of, of Bloodhaven too, um, to make sure they're well and make sure they matter. And one was, you know, and it was like, great. So, so one, one of them is going to be uh, him as Robin uh, and, and sort of inspired by my love of those, those golden age stories. But mm-hmm. uh, Dick Sprang and a lot of those guys are, are dead or are hopefully having a great time in retirement. Uh, so we, we kind of shifted and it wasn't like, you know, we're like, let's find somebody with an, an old style or golden age style. We're like, let's find somebody with who can really deliver that gritty style. Mm. A lot of those, you know, we think about early Robin stories and like the image in our head is like some of the like really colorful, bright stuff. But a lot of those golden age stories were like really dirty and, and kind of grimy and dark and shadowy. And, and that's why Batman and Robin like popped so much on the page. But there were these, these you know, almost Dick Tracy-esque grotesque villains, um, you know, gangsters who would pop up and you kind of never hear about them again. And yeah. they, they spent a lot of time on, on I mean, they sound silly, but it, it's really striking when you, when you read them, like they spent a lot of times in alleys and rooftops and having fist fights and stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know? Uh, and, and, and Klaus excels in all of those things um, and excels at them in a way that doesn't come off as, Kind of as, as as cartoony or retro, mm-hmm. you know. I, I I mean, I love the golden age stuff, but a lot of people read that stuff and they can't connect with it. Uh, we we knew Klaus could come in and be a real heavy hitter with that kind of material, especially the fights. And I and I love the fight scenes that Klaus delivered in that issue. Uh, you you really feel like the punches and the kicks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so then the second one would be the 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 new Teen Titan stuff, which is tricky because uh, some of that stuff doesn't quite uh, exist in continuity anymore, yeah. only in our hearts. <laughs> but uh, uh, <clears throat> I do love that Dick, one of my one of the earliest stories I ever read about Dick Grayson was about how he was uh, a college student at Hudson University. Hmm. And I love this idea that he took a break. He took a break from being Robin to be a college student. Yeah. Um, and I, I think in those stories, it was always kind of like, well, I'm, I'm Robin anyway, you know, because something happened, so I'm in costume anyway. Yeah. But uh, I, I like the idea that the, there is something, something bugging Dick, some, mm-hmm. something where he 
he just wasn't feeling right about things and college going off to college seemed like the answer. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like a phase in Dick's life where he was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm feeling conflicted about this. I've been robbing for most of my whole life. I, I, I'm going to try and do something normal. I'm going to try and be a normal person. Mm. Uh, and of course he, it's, it's going to be tough for him and he eventually comes back and is Robin and Nightwing and yeah. the whole history that we know about. You can't escape who he is. Uh, and exactly. And Phil is, uh, you know, if I didn't gush enough about Klaus, he's a, a living legend. Mm-hmm. He's one of my favorite artists. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to have a, a, a three day seminar with him, uh, uh, where he changed the way I, I write comic scripts forever. Wow. Uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this and get embarrassed, but, <laughs> and then Phil is a Phil, Phil is an artist who I've loved for ever since I first saw him, uh, in draw the invisibles. And, Absolutely. uh, he, uh, you know, it's no secret. He loves George Perez and he loves new teen Titans and mm-hmm. not just Dick and Nightwing, but he loves Donna and Corey and all of them. And, yeah. Uh, uh, he, uh, it would not be an exaggeration to call him a perfect match and down to, you know, we had a great conversation where I had been immersing myself in these, these old new teen Titans and, just like marveling because you forget like some of those pages are like 10 panel pages, 12 panel yeah. pages. And they, they, they just like crank them out. Like it's nothing, you know, like that's just, that's just their storytelling. Like every page, every page yeah. it's wild. And, um, I was very, I was very bashful about asking him like, Hey, do you want to draw 10 panels a page? Do you want to draw 12 <laughs> panels a page? It's a big ass. But he brought it up. He's like, I, I want to do that that new Teen Titans style of storytelling. Like, what do you think? And I was like, I, I, I think I love you. So let's do this. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was and interesting. He did. You saw the issue. Like he, he, he's doing the, he's doing the, the massive panels. He's doing yeah. crazy layout designs. He's doing big moments to the, the double page spread and everything. Like he, he really, really nailed it. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, he's doing, and I mean, both both he and and Jamal Campbell were were absolutely nailing it. But it, yes, can yeah, can we talk about Jamal for a second? Please, he's. I mean, that, I, that guy is great. It's so good. Like I, I, it it blended so seamlessly with Bernard's style, uh, but in in a way that like still sort of takes this different approach. And I, I like what he does with his his colors, the way that everything kind of has this sort of glow to it in in certain scenes. Um, yeah. He is, he's, Jamal is absolutely a superstar in the making. He is a total package. Oh, absolutely. He's got the action. He's got the characters. He's got the acting. He's got the environments. He's got the storytelling. And he colors his own work. He colors his own stuff. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's insane. Like, especially for somebody to be able to, to meet deadlines and still do all of that, you know, heavy lifting of, of coloring and doing your, your line art, you know, and layouts and everything. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. And I, I, I did also, I, I wanted to, to point out too, I mean, like one thing that stood out to me, cause I, you know, like Phil obviously has been working so long and, and, you know, it's his, his work is almost unavoidable if you, if you've been reading DC comics for any part of the last, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, but I, I found it interesting that in this, in this issue, he did kind of change his style a bit to like the, the layouts, you know, for one, and then also just even the way that he's illustrating his faces, the way he's, you know, doing shading and stuff. I mean, there was a lot of George Perez in here for sure. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I I'm not, I don't think I'm talking out of school to say that if Phil has an opportunity to lean into his George Perez influence, he will be there in a second. You don't have to ask him <laughs> twice. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he really did. And you see some of those layouts and stuff. Oh. Uh, he, you know, a, a part of it, I think, is that, is that we... Sometimes you don't always get to do that style of storytelling these days, mm. you know. And this was uh, not just a, a story and a creative team and an editorial team that was excited about it, but it was uh, an opportunity to really like honor that that kind of storytelling and like ha- hang a hang a light on it and spotlight it and, and honor it in the context of a story where it really made sense to, to, uh, take that, take that approach to it. So, Mm uh, I, I, I think not in too heavy a way, but we were all excited to really just like show why we love that kind of storytelling so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think, I think you guys pulled it off, uh, incredibly well. I'm, I'm excited to see how, uh, the, the untouchable arc finishes off because, uh, the chapter six of the untouchable is the final chapter of this arc, right? Chapter seven. Seven. Okay. Okay. It's uh, chapter seven. So thirty nine is uh, with Phil, and mm-hmm. then we have forty and forty one with Bernard doing the, doing the last two. Oh, cool. That that makes sense because he, he he did the did he do the first one or the first two of this arc? The first two. He did right? the first two, so cool. there, there ended up being a, uh, an, an interesting symmetry. Yeah. He did the first two, the last two, and the middle chapter. That's cool. Now, was this, uh, I'm curious, how much, you know, obviously, because we talked about this, this book, you know, is double shipping. Um, And and by the way, listeners, as you're as you're listening to this right now, uh, issue number 39 just came out. So definitely go and buy it. And you can see all of this beautiful artwork we've been talking about. And 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 this awesome story, I think that's incredibly sort of compelling and tense. And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm a little angry just because you left me on such a cliffhanger here. Uh <laughs> now, especially because it's an advanced copy, like I have to wait, you know, three weeks before I can and can culminate this uh, story in my head, or at least continue it in my head. Yeah, man, pissed off. Um, and, the, and the second, the second, the last issue has a has a massive, uh, massive cliffhanger too. Oh, cool! Thanks, Sam. That's really cool of you. Thanks so much. I appreciate yeah. it. That's how you got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious that with, with, you know because it's double shipping, and obviously you dealt with this on on Green Lanterns as well. Um, but I know that for for the beginning of DC Rebirth, you had a, a you know at least a pretty decent lead time on on getting your story put together and and kind of planning out arcs with artists and stuff. Did you have the same amount of lead time on Nightwing as you did with Green Lanterns, or was it uh, a lot shorter? Tough comparison because. Uh we didn't have as much lead time on green lanterns as some of the other rebirth books did. Oh, um, yeah, just, just no, nothing crazy or controversial or anything. Yeah, it was just a, a lot of moving parts of rebirth going on. And, um, uh, it, I think if I really had to nail it down, I think it was, it was a, a really interesting new concept for a green lantern book. Mm. Um, that, it everybody kind of had to like get comfortable with it and get excited about it. Um, 
Spalin, Nightwing, we did have the opportunity to get a, a little bit of a head start. You know, it's never as much as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we we were able to start in the production process before Tim's run was over. Uh, and so we were able to get uh, a, a head start and be able to have Bernard span, you know, do the first chunk and the last chunk of the arc and the, the sort of the pivotal middle issue um, and have him be able to, to, to hit those, those, those big moments for us. Mm-hmm. And so was it like, what was it like for you adjusting to the schedule of, of writing a double shipped book? You know, you've been doing it, I guess now for about two years, but was there, was there a lot of growing pains for you just kind of getting all of that sort of figured out on your own schedule and, and things like that of how to manage it? Uh, you know, great question, uh, that a lot of people ask, but the answer is not really, (laughs) because previous to that, I've been in Marvel for four years. And most of that time I was writing at least two books that were multi-shipping and Mm. multi-shipping was 16 to 18 issues a year. Oh, wow. So if you do the math, I was actually writing more books in a year when I was at Marvel than I was doing a twice monthly book at DC. Oh, so you're, you're lounging um, around and, in a lawn chair with like a drink with a little umbrella. <laughs> <in it now. laughs> I was a little smug. I was a little smug <laughs> coming to the table with the, the twice monthly with a bunch of DC writers. I've never done it before. Yeah. Uh, no, I, it, but, uh, the, the advantage with twice monthly over two multi shipping books is that, you really only have to be in one headspace to kind of jump from one script to the next. You mm. really only have one set of plot threads to keep track of, one set of main characters, one set of supporting characters, uh, one set of themes. You know, when the the artist situation is always tricky, but if you're lucky, you're gonna you're gonna have one set of rotating artists and you know one one editorial team that you develop a, a relationship with over time. Um, and uh, if you have that on two books. Uh, you, you're you're split mm-hmm. more than if if you're just on the one book. I mean, then there's a lot of advantages to being on two books with the same output than one book because you have two sets of artists that you get to work with, and that's always fun. And two yeah. two sets of editors who can bring different things to the table and two different uh, storylines. So if you get stuck or just sick of one, you can move to the other. Mm-hmm. And two two different fandoms, two different sets of fans. You know, um, of course. So there's pros and cons on both sides. Um, and and in talking about, I guess with with Nightwing, do you have like a a strong sort of um, I guess touchstone for for that character from you know all of the years of you know different iterations that that Dick Grayson has been through? Is there like one for you that's always stood out as your your touchstone to who he is? <sighs> you know, I mean, I, I I have a I have a bunch. I don't I don't know if there's one, but I I really wanted to bring out different um <clears throat> different eras of, of dick like we were talking about mm-hmm. the golden age the new teen titans the current day um i guess you know one thing i always kept coming back to is that um dick is a lifer mm-hmm. you know and he's the first lifer he's not the only lifer but he's the first lifer mm-hmm. and there's there's something really crazy about that because if you think if you kind of like put yourself in the golden age inside the DCU, you've got Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. You've got all these char- these these people who are blazing a trail of what it means to be a superhero. Mm-hmm. And 
you, maybe maybe none of you are really quite sure where this leads or what this means. Does it go forever? Does it only is it only a phase? Is it uh, something that's going to end in tragedy for everyone? You don't know. And then right at the beginning, like right away, <laughs> you have a kid come and join. Like y'all got to kind of be like, look at yourselves, and be like, is this a good idea? Are we gonna <laughs> screw him up for life? Like, is this? Yeah. <laughs> Is this at all smart? Is this at all? <laughs> and for somebody like Dick, who is so excited to be Robin, he's so excited to be Batman's partner, he brings an element of the circus to mm-hmm. it, an element of performing, where he almost has to, especially at the beginning, when his parents just died right in front of him, he is trying to deal with grief while at the same time being a trailblazer in this incredibly weird uh, professions that he's chosen uh, with a, a bunch of other people who are just as weird for choosing it too. Um, so I, I think there's a show must go on aspect to Dick mm-hmm. where he, he's like, I'm, I, I'm always going to be charming and funny and I'm always going to be punching and kicking. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm going to convince these guys like, so they don't like kick me out. Like, yeah. <laughs> they don't, they don't take it away, you know, <laughs> that they would do it presumably for his own goodwill, but that's not what he does, he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something really charming about that. And there's a lot, there's a lot of good that comes from that, but there's also a lot of bad that comes from that as a, as a person psychologically, you know, like you can't always be the show must go on. You, you have to find some time to be, uh, to process your grief and your sadness and your regret and your anger at yourself for the times you fail and you screw up mm-hmm. the, and this fear that because you have screwed up, that this is going to be the end of the only life you pretty much ever had since mm-hmm. you were a kid. Um, and, and also this idea that like, we don't get into it too much and untouchable, but there's this idea that like, as long as Dick is okay, then it's okay to be a superhero. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Like as long as as long as Dick is a good person, then what yeah. we're all doing, like from the perspective of like Batman, but but also like the the more recent characters who are new to being a superhero and they're not sure what they're doing and, and maybe this is a good thing to do with my life. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But hey, here's a kid who was raised doing this, and he's kind of like the best of us. <laughs> like that's reassuring. Yeah, he's, he's almost like a bellwether. But the the. The, again, the flip side of that is that if he fails, if he crashes and burns, everyone's got to be like, man, I don't know if this is good for anyone. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure for Dick to be under. Of course. You know, he, everyone's always like, you're the best of us. You're the best of us. And he is. That's mm-hmm. not unearned. That's a lot of pressure, too. Yeah, it is interesting because he has definitely, you know, he he's quite often sort of held up as as certainly you know the the best of them and the you know like almost this this the like the 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 person who's really like a product of the dc universe where you know like everything in his life has been you know in one way or another caused by these events from other sort of you know from like batman stories or whatever you know what i mean like in that sort of unique kind of way and and yeah he is kind of propped up that way but it's interesting that the pressure of that doesn't typically show in in a i guess a traditional way for him i don't know yeah and i mean again it's not something we get into a whole lot in Mm. the untouchable but if you're somebody like dick grayson who is friends with superman 
you fought with Superman, but you also admire Superman so much to know that Superman looks at you in that way. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure there. Yeah, <laughs> especially for you know somebody who's not the most seasoned or the oldest or has the most experience. Yeah, there was there was something uh, fun that, that that Tim Seeley did during his run when he when he kind of had Dick and, and Superman uh, do a little interaction there, and I thought it was an interesting comparison. Uh, to draw just kind of talking about you know sort of the way that that someone like superman would regard him that way i'm sure that that's a bit jarring for for that character yeah but um now one thing i i also wanted to to bring up is kind of this this bloodhaven history that you've sort of been establishing with with uh the judge and and in this arc of of the untouchable are is there is there a specific kind of like u.s history that you're drawing from to to shape all this stuff or, or anything that's been established in previous nightwing comics or do you feel like it's it's mostly sort of whole cloth? No, it's definitely influenced by the history of, of America, and in some ways, very um, <clears throat> kind of like practical in, in a practical way. Mm-hmm. Um, in that issue, in issue thirty nine, which you read, that Phil drew, um, we established in the very early history of Bloodhaven that is, is very similar to the early history of New York, mm-hmm. New Amsterdam, actually mm-hmm. specifically. At first it was the Dutch, and then it was the British, and then blah, blah, blah. Uh, and also I kind of <clears throat> pulled on the history of whaling in America, which a lot of it was established by German immigrants who had experienced whaling in Europe. Um, and, you know, we and, – and, and that's a great story right there. The, yeah. The, the Dutch and then the English and then the German, like that's there, – there's, there's a lot of richness there. But also – uh, you know, this, this sort of other history of America that is not going to be a chapter in your history book, but this, this history of America, which is that whenever, whenever somebody's getting rich, a lot of people are getting left behind. <laughs> whenever there's a boom or an explosion of industry or economy, mm-hmm. a lot of people somewhere are getting screwed. Yeah. And with Bloodhaven being a former whaling town, mm-hmm. basically a blue collar town that has recently experienced a resurgence thanks to gambling and casinos, they've experienced an influx of cash that would be very rapid and very transformational mm-hmm. for the city, but not the whole city, right? Yeah. So is something that Bernard and I bonded on really quick right away, which is that there's a part of Bloodhaven that looks like not even Atlantic City, not even Vegas, but like Macau. Mm. It is it is a city on steroids. You know what I mean? Yeah. And but then there's another part of of Bloodhaven that's it's not neon and glass. It's all iron and brick, and it's people like Guppy who have gotten. Are, who are not part of the neon revolution, who are not benefiting from it, people who are just trying to get by mm-hmm. while a small amount of people, uh, you know, <clears throat> represented by people like the mayor and Lucy Weatherton and all of them who are getting very rich very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know this, but it, it, it's not something that is really in the forefront of the story, but it's something that, informs bloodhaven and makes bloodhaven a very american city yeah i in okay and you brought up guppy and so i I have to talk about him for a bit because my god like 
that's that that character just just breaking my heart consistently for four <laughs> issues straight. I like there was I can't remember which which issue it was in, but there's that one shot where his eyes are like just above the waterline after he's been like pushed over the oh, dock, yeah. and he's just like so, like mm-hmm. that was such a I don't know such an emotional moment for me. Uh, was yeah. it your goal to to just like make people j- just care so much about this? weird random shark guy and was he even a character that existed before or was that totally original or i guess totally new he's 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 a brand new character okay. uh he's he's original insofar as i have ripped off aka paid homage <laughs> to a performance in the movie uh killing them softly by scoot mcnary mm. who is a fantastic actor he's one of my favorite actors that's interesting um, i hadn't even thought of that and, that comparison but that's yeah okay yeah 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 and he he kind of um i i, I knew i wanted a character that was kind of a, a mix of um supporting character and a little bit antagonist and, and a little bit of like a Greek chorus in a sense, like somebody who just by, you know, just, just seeing what they're doing naturally, they're, they're, it's a little bit of commentary on the overall story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I always say that Guppy was never truly born until Bernard drew him with his sad little mustache on his <laughs> shark face. <laughs> and, uh, and and originally Guppy was just a uh, uh, a human. He was just a a hood, you uh-huh. know. But I was I was getting deep on all this stuff about Bloodhaven and the whaling and the harbor and the ocean and you know a lot of that plays out in a lot of places. And I was like, "Fuck it, it's a comic book. We're gonna make him a a, a half shark man." <laughs> it That's was... what we're gonna do. And and Chris Conroy, a fantastic editor, was like. This, if if you could pull this off, it, it is going to be amazing. And so <laughs> I really took that as encouragement to really go there with Guppy in terms of having him illuminate a really heartbreaking story. Mm-hmm. You know, like having the confidence that this half shark man who on on his face is ridiculous, uh, having the confidence that he can carry this this, this very relatable, heartbreaking story. Yeah, it's uh, it was so strange because like from like page two of of your run on Nightwing, there's just a table of people gambling and one of them's a shark, and I was just like, wait a minute, yeah. what? Like <laughs> so matter of fact, and, and you know it ends up growing into this actual character that I care about, you know. But at first glance, I was just looking at that and I was like, oh, that's you know funny world building. Okay, I guess in Bloodhaven there's just kind of shark men walking around. Cool. Uh, and it was it was so interesting. It's comic books, baby. Yeah, no, and I I love it. Yeah. Like especially that he does grow into such a such an interesting and and sort of rich character. Um, that again, I just couldn't help but feeling bad for and 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 sad about this entire time. So I guess hats off to you for uh, for making me feel those emotions. <laughs> Thank you very much, and you're welcome. Of course. Um, well, we're 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 getting close on time here. Uh, I. I know we we have a lot of um, aspiring creators that uh, that listen to the show, and so I was wondering if I'd be able to you know sure. pick your brain a little bit about uh, about some of that stuff. Um, yeah, 
One thing I, I, I wonder about everybody, and I find it to be a little different with every creator and especially every writer, is what's your sort of schedule like as you're, as you're writing and, and putting together uh, comics? What do you do that, that you think is, is amounts to the most success for you? Uh, God, you know, probably the things that help me the most, especially if I'm like uh, talking to an aspiring creator, like most creators... I get the idea that, that comics are a lot of work and you have to put a lot of work into it. And that, that is very true. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think one thing that we don't communicate to aspiring creators is that <clears throat> creativity is a well, and sometimes you have to refill that well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Uh, and and the, the, the best thing to do is to figure out what works for you. What works for me is not going to work for everybody. But the the challenging thing is that what you have to do to refill that well isn't going to feel like work, mm-hmm. and it's not going to look like work to people like your friends and your family either. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a little challenging. Like for me, uh, going going running helps a ton. Hmm. I ran uh, six miles uh, this morning. Uh, going running is uh, huge for me, and uh, I don't do it all the time, uh, but if I'm not running, then I'm usually meditating on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are things to, to clear the mind, to get your body moving, to get out of the house. Uh, you can't be looking at your computer all day. You need to open your, you, you need to open your, your, your input. You need to absorb things. You need to see people. You need to look at nature or even just look at the, the city around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also need to ab- absorb things that are not, comics and not the internet Mm. so you need to go see movies you need to it's a fantastic excuse to blow a shit ton of money (laughs) on art books just like we've always wanted to do Mm -hmm. to have art books or making of books uh like there's a fantastic series of art of books of all the the miyazaki movies which are great oh yeah Uh, if you're stuck it's amazing to pull out an art book doesn't have to be something or an artist that, that, that you particularly love. It could be something that, that you don't know, an area of art or an era or a discipline that you have no experience or exposure to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just to feel open up an art book and be inspired by that, especially, especially, especially if it has no direct relevance to what you're stuck on at the moment. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, don't be like, I'm stuck writing a superhero book about Batman. I'm going to pull out a superhero comic or I'm going to pull out a crime book or mm-hmm. I'm going to pull out something about police or policing or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like pull out uh, a, a Miyazaki book or pull out um, the notebook. A, a book about uh, manuscript illumination in Europe or a book on the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Like the, it's crazy, but it does work you will find the solutions to your problems and things that have nothing to do with what you're stuck on. Hmm. That's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I'm, it's, it's, it's funny how, how true that is though. I mean, there, there's so many things. I mean, obviously just storytelling in general or the world in general, there's, there's so much that can, uh, I guess tie in or just solve problems randomly. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, and everybody's experienced this where, you'll literally just be in the shower thinking about nothing. And all of a sudden, like some problem that's been ailing you for days just fits into place and you figure it out. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, 
there's a there's a fantastic scene, and I'm not even going to be able to remember what episode it's in, but fantastic <laughs> scene in the West Wing mm. where uh, God Toby and the other guy, I can't remember, but they're trying to spend the whole episode solving this problem about a bill or whatever, coming up with a solution, mm-hmm. and then he eventually does, and I, I think Toby asks the other guy. Like, like he, they pitch the idea and it works and they're alone in the room for a second. Toby asks the other guy, like, how in the world did you come up with that solution? And the other character pauses and you remember the whole rest of the episode where this whole crazy story mm-hmm. happened that inspired him to come up with a solution. And you see him for a minute being like, can I really get away with telling him this whole crazy story? And he just goes, uh, I, it came to me in the shower. <laughs> And that, and that's like like a lot of times like your editor or yep. your collaborator, your co-creator, whoever, somebody's going to be like, how how did you come up with this? How did you come up with a solution? This thing that we we're stuck on, this thing we knew we were a problem, and you're going to be like, I, I could tell you, but it's it's not going to make any sense. Yeah, it's like I was watching Sports Center or some, you know, like it just it never never yeah. announced anything. Yeah, yeah, I I went to go see Coco, you know, whatever, like any of this stuff. <laughs> Speaking of Coco, I have no God, lie, there so is. A, I was, I was. Oh, the movie's amazing. First of all, it's <laughs> incredible, and there is a scene in the middle chapter of Untouchable that I was stuck on. Mm-hmm. And Coco, I was watching Coco, and because of something they did in the movie, I was like, "That's how I'll fix it," and it worked. Yeah, that's amazing. I always find the the biggest curse <laughs> of that is that you find like something cues in, like one little dialogue line cues into that thought in your brain, and then you go off on this little thought train, like thinking about that problem and figuring it out. And then it's like 10 minutes later and you've missed 10 minutes of the movie, you know? It's the worst. Yeah. (laughs) I do that all the time. But hey, look, you can rewind the movie, right? (laughs) You can go back and watch it again. But that that fix, that solution you came up with, that is worth gold. That is worth more than 10 minutes of that movie. It's invaluable. Um, And the the last question I'll I'll ask you before I let you go, and and again, thank you for being uh, so generous with your time, uh, is... Where what what's the best piece of advice that that you've ever gotten that that you feel like helped you the most? And I know it's a, a big, broad, tough. God, question. That's a great question. Yeah, God, and I'm like totally blanking already. Well, then you can do the worst piece of advice. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll put it this way: that uh, I was stuck in my career early on. I had those two short stories published and like nothing else, mm-hmm. and I just knew because I had nothing moving, nothing happening, that I was about to have like an entire year with nothing published. Mm-hmm. I was about to have a dead year in the second year of my career. And that's not good yeah. at all. And I was like, fuck it. Well, I'm just going to have to self publish something. Like if I'm, if this is the last year of my career, I'm going to go out in a ball of flame. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to make it the most spectacular <laughs> end of a career as I can. Um, and so like I was talking about earlier, I zeroed in on our love is real as one thing to self publish. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, no one's ever going to mistake this as something that they could have done or could have come from another writer. Uh, and I told some comic book industry friends of mine, some people who are, are very smart and otherwise have very good advice that I would listen to. And I would still listen to them. But a lot of people told me not to do it. Mm. A lot of people advised me not to publish the dog sex story. <laughs> and like, they weren't wrong. Like, yeah. based on all available information 
that was the correct advice. Uh-huh. But I was kind of stuck. I was like, I, I need something to publish that's one issue, and I need something that's going to be really distinctive. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. And that was the book that kicked off my career. Which, yeah, I mean, and I will call them out by name, but but, but they they have admitted I, I've been on a panel with one of them, very 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 well known name, incredibly smart person, and mm-hmm. they confessed on the panel that they told me not to do it, and they they said they were wrong. So sometimes they, they the the sensible option isn't uh, the right option. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Uh, I want to tell the listeners, uh, make sure you go yeah. and pick up Nightwing number 39, which is out now. Uh, Nightwing number 40 comes out on March 7th with uh, Bernard Chang returning to wrap up the arc with Sam. Uh, Sam, you're on Twitter at Sam Humphreys, right? That is correct. You got it. Awesome. Easy to, easy to spell, easy enough. Uh, and uh, you can find our show on Twitter at Savage Land Pod, Instagram at Savage Land Podcast. And we hope you've enjoyed your time in the Savage Land. Thanks, man. It was great to be here. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Be cool.com. You never know.